Welcome, I'm Brooke Thompson, and this is Modern Mental Health. The next person I interviewed is a social worker and therapist based out of Fredericton, New Brunswick, in private practice. Her name is Valeria. All right, I think I'm just okay. going to start off with the first question. Yep. Um, are you currently aware of any research projects being done in the province regarding mental health? I'm not aware of any provincial research projects. Um, so healthcare, that like mental health care, does fall under the provincial mandate. So the province is responsible for um, providing mental health services to the people who live in the province. The federal government, they don't provide health care services, but they often fund studies. So you may find a lot of research studies um, through the federal government's website. There's a CIHR, the Canadian Institute of Health Research, um, and they often do a lot of studies. Um, I know that right now they are um, funding a pilot project for an addictions program, uh, a harm reduction focus addictions program, where they provide folks who are addicted to injectable opiates with the injectable opiates so they don't have to buy them on the street. Um, I know right now we're in discussions about uh, funding a project for gender-affirming care so folks um, can have better access, folks who are transgender and non-binary can have uh, better access to, to treatment and support. Um, as far as the province, I don't, I'm not sure what they're doing in terms of research. And I'm currently, I'm in private practice, so I don't, I don't work for the government. Um, so on one hand, uh, I don't have the insight as a government worker, but on the plus side, I'm also not, um, I can say whatever I want about how I feel about um, the government provisions of mental health services. I have no contract with them that would limit what I can say and not say. Yeah, um, like when I, w uh, when I interviewed a few other um, therapists, they also said the same thing, that they weren't aware of any like research projects being done in the province um, other than at UNB that had recently been shown on the news. But um, uh, it came to my attention that uh, it's actually something they need to do in order to graduate so it's not necessarily like a um like on their own uh it's more of a need to do kind of thing like there's no one out there doing research about this um topic um because it needs to be researched just because they need to do the research kind of thing um, so my next question is, what are positive and negative things about the mental health system of New Brunswick? Well, one positive is that there are people out there who care and want to help. So there are a lot of people who work um, uh, in the mental health field, but also in other areas that kind of support people's mental wellness. Um, in all kinds of ways. So there are a lot of people, like individuals, who um, like to help. Some of the negative sides I see, but there's not enough attention to prevention. 
So waiting for a crisis to happen and then responding to the crisis seems to be the focus of, uh, or not the focus, but kind of how healthcare is provided, whether it's mental health care or physical health care. Um, we tend to focus our funding and our approaches on, on how to respond when people are sick. But what can we do to help their wellness? Um, and so there's a lot of, um, a lot of kind of, I guess, risk factors for people getting like mentally, mentally unwell. Um, and some of the things uh, include not having like, a sense of belonging. So even like looking at how we structure schools and how we structure our environment uh, to ensure that people, particularly from more like marginalized groups, um, have uh, you know better better opportunities to have that kind of sense of belonging. So it could be something as um, as you know easy and simple as ensuring that there are um, enough gender neutral washrooms in all schools and public places uh, so that you know, government ensures that they're providing um, washrooms where people who are transgender and non-binary can go to the bathroom safely. Um, there's um, another, another important, a few other points that I had thought of about what can help uh, prevent mental um, unwellness or people kind of feeling that they're in a, in, you know, in a crisis and uh we can kind of support resiliency and how to, how to kind of deal with, with uh, you know, terrible situations. So a couple of things, yeah, safety, um, hope, um, and even like something like climate change, where we don't always kind of link climate change to uh, mental health. But I think there's a, a, a link. I think if, if, we're, if we're providing um, policies, the government's providing policies that give, especially the younger generation, um, some kind of hope that um, there's going to be uh, a stop or a change or a slowdown in global warming. Um, that, that, for example, can help with um, preventing uh, mental health crises. Um, opportunities. So, like, having livable minimum wages, having affordable housing, having support for families, having childcare support, um, having access to activities like art, that are that are free. They're available for everyone. So it's not just available for people who who can afford it, whose families can afford it. Um, and really um, ensuring there's policies that uh, try to prevent further racism. Um, you know, we're looking look at policies that support decolonization. So folks who are Indigenous aren't experiencing as much, you know, racism, um, as much like disrespect of, uh, you know, their culture, worldview, um, that their, uh, like, land rights are respected. So there's all these kind of systemic things that are, are also part of mental health care. Yeah, I totally agree. There's, like... Um... There's so much that goes into different people's mental health and so many different things affect it. And I feel like um, there's only research done in the areas that the general people um, are affected by. Like, um, obviously, COVID, the um, things like the numbers have gone up for mental health cases. And like, um, there's only like the general 
um, people that's being researched for, but there's always those, like, um, smaller groups, but are still quite large that need to be looked into, like, um, like what you mentioned, the, um, climate change, because I know there's so many people, um, my age, um, especially, like, um, that are actually worried about, um, their future lives and, like, um, their children or even grandchildren, if they can even get to that point, like, it's stress that's, um, being caused, like, currently thinking about their future that we can change if we start now, but it's not being in effect, so that's definitely really important. Um, sorry, uh, no, um, you go ahead, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I was just going to reiterate that the stress that uh, young people face um, is legitimate. You um, know, like, it's legitimate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, would you say that one list is larger than the other? <laughs> um, well, my list is, my list is, and... Um, you know, I, I do see a lot of needs and a lot of uh, a lot of um, areas where things could be improved. Um, another one that I didn't, I didn't mention that I, I had it noted here too, I think is important, is really long wait times for uh, mental health services. Um, and uh, really there's not a lot of especially for a funded counseling. So anything from the public service area, there's there's not a lot of funding for counseling, and it's really hard to get a psychiatrist. So, yeah. Yeah, um, I was, like, someone I interviewed yesterday mentioned that, like, um, the only reason why it looks like the ne- negative um, has a larger list is because it's things that are, like, so important that are a part of the negative. And, like, once we change those things to the positive side, the the positive list will look so much larger. So even if the positive list is quite large, um, uh, the negative still outweighs the positive right currently just because of... Um, the different things that are in the negative side right now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's not just how many are on that list, but how important are each of those items. Yeah. Um, my next question is, where is the first place people should go for when looking for help? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's... I don't know if this is the first for everyone. Um, so I think it kind of depends on the person. Um, for some people, if they already con- if they have a support person and they're already, already connected with someone, they should go to that person if they already have an established relationship, whether it's someone in their family, um, whether it's someone in their school, um, whether it's like their doctor or their nurse. Um, and sometimes what I hear from a lot of people of, from a lot of different ages is that um, when when people need help, they don't want to be a burden to some people. And I think people's kind of sense of not wanting to bother people, not wanting to be a burden, um, really stops them from getting help and asking for help. Um, and um, the, the folks who care uh, 
want to be able to help. They want that opportunity. They want the opportunity to help. So I think the first place is is you know to go to someone who who's already in there um, that, that that they feel like they can turn to. They already have the relationship with them. They have a supportive person. Um. The um, there's a 24 hour hotline number uh, from Chimo, and I recommend Chimo because they are open 24 hours. There's no wait times. People can just call them. They're trained. Um, they listen, um, and they could also provide uh, information about other resources. Um, their phone number is one eight hundred six six seven. There is a mobile crisis unit as well. They're open from 12 to 10. Um, they, they can drive to someone's house uh, if that person is um, thinking about hurting themselves. And uh, their phone number is 506-453-2132. Um, one of the barriers to the mobile crisis is that they often do come with a police. With a police. So folks who have had really traumatic experiences with the police uh, kind of find that service not as comforting um, because when they see the police, they feel like they're in trouble. Um, another one that's uh, offered in schools is ISD, it's Integrated Service Delivery, and that's a uh, multidisciplinary, meaning there's people from different uh, profession, professions working there. So there'll be social workers, there'll be nurses, uh, occupational therapists, I believe, um, and their phone number is 506-453-2132, um, and they can kind of offer ongoing help. So like for folks who are like, like they're at home and they're in crisis and they don't know where to go, they don't know who to, who to turn to, they feel really alone, they don't want to, they don't think they can do it anymore, they feel that they're done, I recommend to call Chimo to kind of get through that moment so they don't feel alone, so they feel like they can get through it. Um, if they have people who uh, are in their family, uh, friends, or in their school, they, they can turn to talk to them. For ongoing support, the ISD, the Integrated Service Delivery, yeah. Um, the Victoria Mental Health Center, they can offer services. I won't, it's not, ur like, they don't offer urgent ones and if someone's feeling really 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 in despair sometimes that phone call to them can be disappointing because they won't get help immediately um, and sometimes the conversations that they have with the person on the phone they're kind of, at the end of the conversation they're kind of left with well I don't know well, they don't get that, that kind of immediate help that they need um, but if they get the immediate help that they need through something like Chimo or, or somewhere else, and now they're looking to kind of either better to, sorry, to improve their mental wellness, improve their mental health, to get like ongoing support, to stay well, things like that, that would be the Victoria Mental Health Center. Um, the hospital is there to keep people safe. Um, there is, there are, people go to the hospital, they do wait for a long time to be able to get seen. 
Um, and um, the hospital doesn't really offer a lot of ongoing support. Um, so they ensure that someone, well, they, their mandate, like what they're responsible for, is to ensure that someone is, is safe for that night. Um, and once they're reassured, or even that night they're reassured the person is not going to hurt themselves, then that they could, um, you know, tell them to go. But they don't really offer any help to uh, support them with any of the underlying problems that they had that that made them feel so much in despair. So the hospital sometimes can be a real big disappointment for people. Um, if someone is experiencing psychosis, like maybe they started getting symptoms of schizophrenia um, and they um, have like what we we'll call it like internal stimuli, right? They're hearing voices. And sometimes, oftentimes those voices are really unpleasant. They're really negative. Um, and the voices are, they don't come from themselves. They have this, this experience where they, they hear it from someone else. Like it's not, it's not their own thoughts. It's someone else's thoughts that's, that's getting into their head. Like maybe someone on their, on their um, TV or their, their computer is talking to them going right to their head. So there's things like that where it's just kind of like a really kind of like a break from, from reality. Um, the doctors there at the hospital can give them medication so that um, they stop experiencing that. But a lot of times I think what most people are, are experiencing with, with mental health is like depression, anxiety, trauma, feelings of isolation. Um, and the hospital doesn't really do a whole lot to help with those things. Um, folks need kind of more ongoing help. So um, the hospital it may not, the hospital is there to keep people safe, um, but sometimes it can be disappointing. The services they get can be disappointing. Um, so I would call Chima first. I would call Chima first. Yeah, people have a phone. Absolutely. Um, are you aware of what the average wait time is for people seeking urgent mental health care? Uh, I mean, I'm, this isn't scientific, this is just kind of based on what people tell me, uh, between 6 to 12 hours. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know if it's recently changed or not. Yeah, uh, I've, like, the wait times that I've heard of are, like, crazy, like, um, and once they get in to see someone, it could be up to weeks and months that they have, like, someone, um, to actually, like, talk to that is, um, like, a professional, um, even when it's urgent, like, um, there's been, uh, like, I heard a story from someone that I interviewed, uh, yesterday that, um, it actually took someone two weeks to actually, like, they went into the hospital for urgent care and didn't get, um, like, a trained professional until two weeks later. Um, yeah. And so they had to um, find, like, their own ways to cope for their, for those two weeks. So, like, I like, the wait times are, like, crazy right now. Um, especially with COVID and, like, all, a bunch of the nurses, um, being at home quarantining and stuff. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, what precautions are taken when people go in seeking men uh, urgent mental health care? 
Well, I think some of the precautions um, that people pay attention to or take the taste take is ensuring that people are going to hurt themselves. Um, at least they're not going to kill themselves. They're not intending to die by suicide that night. So I think that's something they do. They screen for it. Like, are you going to die? As people ask, you know, do they have an intention of plan to die by suicide that night? Um, so that's something that they, that, um, you'll pay attention to what precaution they take. Um, it's not to leave people alone. Um, if, if they are in that, um, you know, mindset. Um, another one that I don't know how, how much this is actually, uh, applied. Um, but, um, we talk about trauma informed care. So really being aware that, um, a lot of people's, uh, mental illnesses and mental health concerns is a result is a symptom of, of trauma. Um, and so kind of being aware, aware of that and being uh, mindful not to re-traumatize people um, in their experience of seeking help. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, is that what, like, how, do you deal with um, clients who um, have had suicidal thoughts or currently have suicidal thoughts going to see you? Yes. Um, yes. Uh, do you have any certain precautions that you take with them um, that you wouldn't necessarily with other clients? Well, yeah. I think if if when if. if uh, I mean, I think that I mean, any of my clients that, that, I, that I meet, anyone that I meet, I think that um, I, I consider that this might be a possibility for them. Uh, people from all walks of life um, can, can experience that, that sense of real hopelessness um, and uh, don't think about uh, you know, making an attempt to, to, to die. Um, so I... I kind of have that in the back of my head uh, with with everyone, everyone I meet, everyone I meet. <laughs> um, and so when I notice something, something kind of sends me a, uh, a flag that, oh, okay, this is happening, so then I explore it, right? And so I'm pretty direct when I ask people, um, you know, how they're thinking, you know, what, what are they thinking about? Um, and we kind of explore what's kind of still keeping them here, right? So we, we kind of look at what, try to support them in, in making it through that day. If someone, um, does not feel better after talking with me, um, and while we're talking, they're, they're, they're still not, um, feeling better they're still they're still having an intent so they're not just thinking about they're not just thinking of hopeless feelings thinking like i wish i was i wish i was dead because this is so hard but really having a plan and intent to, to do to do something um i have a duty to report that i have actually a legal responsibility 
Um, so that's in my service agreement too. When when people see me, um, there's a few things that I have to legally I have to call the police if someone if, if someone tells me that um, they have an intention a plan to die by suicide. I have to call the police. Um, if someone's gonna you know tell me they're gonna hurt somebody else. Um, or uh, they have to disclose that there's a child that's being abused or neglected. I have I have a duty to report that. So I can't. I can't what was your question again? <laughs> what precautions do I take? Does yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess the precautions I take is I really really try to kind of think of strategies that's going to kind of help them get get through that um, get through that day, get through that night, get through that week. Yeah, um, and if I'm not assured, then then I have to call the call the police, um, which I often, I, which I seldom do. I've been I've been working with people who have thoughts um, and intentions about suicide since like the late '90s, so that's a long time, like like thirty thirty years, um, and very I've only called the police a handful of times. 30 years most of the time when people talk about it and they talk about their problems and they they talk about their hopes then um you'll feel better um were there any additional protocols implemented after the lexi dakin incident um, I read that they were. Uh, so I found a link. I'll try to find a report. I remember a report was um, emailed to me, but I couldn't find the actual report. But I found uh, a couple of websites um, to talk about it. I was just going to email them to you. Yeah, absolutely. That works. Okay. Okay. I haven't seen any changes, personally. So nothing like, um, like when you, after the incident, um, nothing was said to change the, like the way that like you interact with your clients or like what precautions you take when, um, you do hear that they are suicidal or different things like that. No, I've been practicing like best practices for, um, you know, for a while, um, and, you know, I don't turn people away. I, you know, if someone comes into my office and they're talking about suicide, I don't make them wait six hours or turn them away. Um, so that's, that's not, uh, that's not, not something that I have ever done. Um, and the changes to the policies were, were in the hospital. They were largely around how the hospital response re, re, uh, responds to uh, suicidal thoughts in the emergency room, and um, public campaigns um, in health authorities. Um, but what I what I was saying, well, I haven't seen any changes because these were there was like a twenty one changes. I, I don't know if it's different in the hospital now or before. Maybe it, ha- maybe it is different. Maybe it's not. Um, sometimes, like, a minister of health will, will say, we need to do we need to do this. this. This will be an overarching plan. But then it's up to different, um, different programs to ensure that they implement 
those changes. Um, and then they're responsible to make sure all the individual workers are, uh, you know, for example, practicing trauma-informed care. Um, so I saw the 21 changes that the Minister of Health announced, but I don't know what that looks like on the ground. I don't know what's, I don't know what's actually changed in the hospital. All right. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add regarding like the mental health system of New Brunswick or anything in that area? Um, let me see. I've covered. I've covered everything. Perfect. That's all the questions I have.